the last um, number of weeks, if you've been with us, we've been working our way through the, the doctrine of Scripture, and we're coming to the last uh, on that particular topic. And I want to deal with the question of, does God still speak today? Um, we've been working kind of as, as, as a background, we've been working through one of our doctrinal standards as a church, the Belgic Confession. Uh, in Article 7, it deals with the question of the sufficiency of Scripture. And so let me start by just reading one paragraph from that particular document. Here's what it says. It says, We believe that this Holy Scripture fully contains the will of God, and that all that man must believe in order to be saved is sufficiently taught therein. The whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in it at length. It is therefore unlawful for anyone, even for an apostle, to teach otherwise than we are now taught in Holy Scripture. Yes, even if it be an angel from heaven, as the Apostle Paul says, it's Galatians 1.8. Since it is forbidden to add or take away anything from the Word of God, Deuteronomy 12.32, it is evident that the doctrine thereof is most perfect and complete in all respects. There's some pretty big claims just in that paragraph, pretty big statements. It talks about the doctrine being most perfect and most complete. Um, if you look at the, the opening line of that particular paragraph, it talks about how um, the, the Bible fully contains the will of God, about how everything that someone needs to know to believe is in there. And I think that they're intentionally big statements because we want to highlight the sufficiency of the Bible, the fact that the Bible is enough. Now, I, I want to say, just to avoid confusion, when we talk about the sufficiency of the Bible, um, we're not saying that the Bible answers every possible question that we could ever have. Right? That's not what we're saying. We're not even saying um, that the Bible is going to teach us everything that we want to know. What we're saying is that the Bible teaches you everything that you need to know. Um, that the Bible teaches you everything that you need to know God and to worship Him properly. From that perspective, we say that the Bible is sufficient, that the Bible is complete. But here's the question I want to think about tonight. Does that mean that God is now silent? And, and what, do you do, what do you do with people who claim to have had a revelation from God? Now, I, I have to be honest. I've never had this. But I remember last year um, sometime I was talking with someone uh, who grew up in Iraq. And he grew up um, a kind of a devout Muslim. And I feel like the lights are coming on all of a sudden. Okay, sorry, I got a little sidetracked there. Let me go back to my story. So uh, last year I was talking to a man who grew up um, in Iraq. This is very difficult to tell a story with the lights coming off and on, okay? We go on or we go off? Okay. So I'm talking to this man, and he's, he's describing his upbringing as a devout Muslim. And um, he has this incredible story one day of encountering one day while he's out. He encounters, he gets picked up by this vehicle. And, and he's driving with this guy who seems to know things about him that just seem kind of uncanny, things that can't be explained. And at some point, the man says something to him along the lines of being the way, the truth, and the life. And this man that I was talking to had no idea what the guy was talking about. Until a couple of years later, 
when he encountered the Gospel of John. He had come across the Gospel and he was reading through it and he came across John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it was what God used him to come to know Christ. I mean, what do we do with that? What do you do, for example, with um, speakers, with pastors who, who, who say things like, you know, um, God revealed to me, or, you know, God told me this or that? Right? that that's the question that I want us to think about. Does God still speak today? And that question is really bound up ultimately in your view of the spiritual gifts, of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, and if we're looking through the Bible, if you want to kind of have a passage that deals with that topic, you look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. 12 through 14, those three chapters, Paul speaks extensively about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so I wanted to just read from the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 12 as we get into this tonight. There we read Paul, and he says, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these, are at, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And He distributes them to each one, just as He determines. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I mentioned, um, as we get into this topic, we're really dealing with our, ultimately with our view of, of the spiritual gifts, our view of um, things like the miraculous powers of healing, things like um, speaking in tongues. And I know that there's probably a lot of questions about all of those things. I'm just going to deal with the topic of prophecy tonight. So maybe we'll get into some of those other things during the Q&A. But I, I want to focus on the issue of prophecy. And when you get into kind of um, the debate around the spiritual gifts, there are really just two camps, right? There, there are two camps. You're either a cessationist, um, and, and I know these are big words, they're actually fairly simple to explain. A cessationist simply believes that the spiritual gifts have ceased. That's where you get cessation from, ceased. So they believe that the spiritual gifts were something, uh, essentially that were unique to the age of the apostles, to, to the early church. A continuationist, no surprise here, believes that the spiritual gifts continue. Uh, that they are, that they are uh, gifts that are active and that are present in the church today. But I want to say that when you kind of get into a debate and when you're talking about different positions, it becomes very easy to um, immediately jump to kind of dealing with the extreme. 
And I think particularly within our tradition where we, where we don't necessarily talk a lot about things like spiritual gifts, uh, it, it's very easy for us to immediately kind of set up the, an extreme example. And there are extremes. I, I want to be very clear about that. that it, it is a concern for me also as a pastor when you're dealing with uh, people who claim to have spiritual gifts and, and, and who do outrageous, almost outlandish things in the name of the Lord. Um, I've been reading recently about uh, the growth of the gospel in Africa. Um, and there's amazing growth happening on the continent. But, but one of the concerns is that there are individuals who are rising up claiming to be prophets, to have prophetic powers, and they're doing things that are, that, that are just sad, that are, are disturbing. Um, let me offer an example. I have a picture here. This is um, a picture of a congregation of a man named Lasego Daniel. It was taken five years ago. And um, in this picture, he has called his congregation to eat grass. And, and we almost kind of smile about that. But, but he, he is saying that this is something that the Lord has revealed to him, that God has called his congregation to eat grass because he, he, he argued that it would draw them near to God, that they would, through this, they would experience the nearness of God. Um, he's done other things like uh, uh, call his congregation to drink small amounts of gas to demonstrate their loyalty. God revealed to him that that was a test for them to demonstrate their loyalty to God. And I hope you can agree with me this evening that the hand of God is not in these things. And there is tremendous damage done to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ when these things happen. And that's a real concern for us, that, that when someone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, an unbeliever, when they encounter these types of things, they, they sometimes look at Christianity and they say, these people are crazy, they're out of their mind. And when you study 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, that's exactly the concern that Paul has in mind. Paul's concern is with the extreme. Right? Paul is concerned that when people would come into the church that they would encounter things going on that were, that were so outrageous that they said people are going out of their mind. But I want to be clear that not every person and not every church that holds to the continuation of the gifts goes to these types of extremes. And so we need to be careful that we don't set up some kind of a straw man argument. For example, John Piper... Um, is a continuationist. Right? And his ministry has been tremendously uh, influential and a blessing in my life. I, I look at someone like Sam Storms, um, another pastor, who is a continuationist. Uh, David Platt, who I talk about often, another pastor who's really, really influenced me, is a continuationist. He, okay, he's sort of a continuationist. Um, Tim Keller... Uh, you know, these are some of my favorites. Tim Keller describes himself as a moderate cessationist. I don't know exactly what that means. But then you've got others like John MacArthur who would describe themselves almost basically as a hardline cessationist. And so I think as, as we get into this, I want to kind of define the key issues. So if, if you look at all of those men, they would condemn the extreme. But where they disagree about is kind of the nature of prophecy. Right? So they argue that prophecy, a continuationist argues that prophecy in the New Testament is, is different than prophecy in the Old Testament. So what Paul is talking about is the, not the same thing as Isaiah or Jeremiah. 
let, let me quote from Piper. He says, I take prophecy as something that, that, here he's talking about New Testament prophecy. He says, I take prophecy as something that God spontaneously brings to mind in the moment. And because we are fallible in the way we perceive it and the way we think about it and the way we speak about it, it does not carry the same level of infallible scripture-level authority. Now, I agree with Piper in the sense that I do think that God does this sort of thing where God spontaneously will bring things to mind. For example, I can think, and I know that some of you will relate, I can think of times in my own ministry where um, God has brought to mind the name of someone in the church. You know, you can be going about your task and all of a sudden the, the, the Lord just impresses on your heart uh, the name of an individual in the church in a strange way, and for some reason you just decide to reach out and to call. And in God's providence, he has you intervene at, at an absolutely critical juncture in someone's life. Right? So I agree with Piper that these sort of things happen, but I'm not convinced that this is what Paul is talking about when he's talking about New Testament prophecy. And so I just want to walk really briefly kind of through this debate to see if it's fair to say that New Testament prophecy is different than Old Testament prophecy. I'm going to cover three things, and, and, and fairly quickly. I want to start just with a general background. When we look at prophecy, Old Testament and New Testament, we see that prophecy is simply the revelation from God, and when you look at who receives it, you see that it's given to both men and women. Okay, so if you look, when we look at the Old Testament prophecy, we often, I say, we think of the big four. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the four major prophets. Um, but there are also example, examples of prophetesses, right? So you could think of Miriam, uh, the sister of Moses. Um, you could think of Deborah in the book of Judges. You could think of, she's not as well known, but someone like Huldah uh, in 2 Kings. And it's interesting that Isaiah's wife is actually described as a prophetess as well. And it's a similar thing that you see in the New Testament. In the New Testament, you know, we have the kind of the popular name, someone like John the Baptist, but there are lesser known prophets like uh, Agabus in Acts 21. But you also have Philip's daughters. Um, I think it's Acts 21 as well. So if you just look generally at the background, you see that when God gives uh, prophecy throughout the pages of Scripture, it's, it's a divine revelation, and it's something that he gives in various examples to men and to women. So that's just kind of a quick background. Um, let's talk about the function, the, the purpose of prophecy. And I, I, I want to draw out two different functions of prophecy. The one is to build up the people of God. And I, I think this was a huge function of prophecy in the Old Testament, was just to build up the people of God. Now, building up sometimes involves tearing down. Uh, that's something you see in the Old Testament prophets, is that part of, their, part of their task was just calling out the sins of the people and warning them about impending judgment, but it was all done. The ultimate purpose of prophecy was to kind of bring the people back to the Lord. And again, I think there's a similarity with what you see the role of prophecy playing in the New Testament. You look, for example, uh, Paul, when he's speaking in 1 Corinthians 12, he says this, and God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers. 
Ephesians 4.11, Paul says again, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. And that's a well-known passage. It goes on to say, uh, to equip the saints for the building up of the body of Christ so that they all grow up into the fullness of him who is the head, that is, Christ. And so there's a clear sense that that is the role of, of prophets. They're given to the church to kind of build up the body of Christ. Little side note, I'm going to come back to this, but you'll notice that when Paul describes the role of, of individuals in the church, he consistently lists apostles as number one, prophets as number two. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. The second role of prophecy, the second function, is simply to be a testimony to the power of God. And there again, I think you see similarities in Old Testament and New Testament. One of my favorite stories is Elijah on Mount Carmel. Um, it's a great story because most of the youth know the story as well. So it's like Mount Carmel, he's, got this, he's being compared to the prophets of Baal, and they kind of have this standoff, they're pitted against each other. And Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a, a sacrifice, you're going to call on your God, I'm going to call on my God. You know, whoever answers with fire, that's who's God. So here's what we read, 1 Kings 18. It says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, the reason I bring up that passage is because I think there's an interesting parallel to when Paul talks about prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul describes it the same way, as, as a witness to cause people to come to know God. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 14. If an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. And so I think if you look at the purposes of prophecy in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you actually see a lot of similarity between both. And I think the same is true for how prophecy is evaluated. And with all due respect to John Piper, who I think is a brilliant mind, I feel that this is an area where he, where, where he misses something. Uh, he presents New Testament prophecy as, as something that really needs to be evaluated, as, um, as something that is different because it's, it's fallible, it's, it's prone to error, and he's concerned, you know, and it does, the, the New Testament speaks about false prophets. But so does the Old Testament. And I was reading from Ezekiel 13 this past week, and Ezekiel is specifically told to go out and to preach against false prophets. And that's why Already back in Deuteronomy 18, God says to the people, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. Right, so already in the Old Testament, God was saying, evaluate prophecy to see whether someone is truly speaking on behalf of the Lord. And that's the same call that you find in the New Testament. Right? In 1 John 4, it says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit's to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. I, rec I recognize that this is kind of a super quick overview, and it's a lot of information coming at once. So I just want to kind of try and bring things together as we wrap up and just conclude with, with kind of four thoughts on this. So four thoughts on this. You are welcome to, to write in questions and debate this, but 
I get to speak first. So I, I think the first thought is this. I, I'm not convinced that the Bible uh, provides evidence to argue that there's a, a distinction of some sort between prophecy in the Old Testament and prophecy in the New Testament. If you look quickly at who prophesied, if you look at the purpose of their prophecy, if you look at how that prophecy was to be evaluated, the same principles seem to be applied to both Old and New Testament. I think the second thing that needs to be said is that there's, there, there is reason, and I think there's reason to make a case that a prophecy was something that was unique um, to the age, to the era of the apostles. Earlier I had said that when, when Paul talks about the different roles in the church, he consistently lists apostles first and prophets second. And if you read from Ephesians uh, 2, verse 19 and 20, here's what Paul says. He's writing to the church and he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. And then here's a key line. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And, and, and so I take that to mean that the apostles and the prophets played a key role in a particular period of time for establishing the foundation of the early church. Third thing, the Bible contains the sufficient revelation of God. I think that's key. And I think one of the things that we need to remember is that during the age of the apostles, they didn't have, they didn't have this. Right? They had Old Testament scriptures. They didn't have the Gospels written out. They didn't have the Word of God in front of them. And so it's not surprising that, that there was a real um, widespread use of prophecy as the church of God multiplied. So I'll leave my comments at that. The fourth thing I want to say is that I think we need to remember that the Bible ultimately reveals Jesus as the prophet. Um, Jesus says in, in John chapter 12, he says, For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. I think one of the reasons there's such a debate in this issue is because, and I think rightly so, those who hold to kind of a cessationist position are concerned about, about those who need to hear an extra word, about those who, who perhaps feel that their faith is not going to be real or legitimate unless they hear the word of the Lord. And I think a key thing that we need to remember is that if you want to hear a word from God, you know, we have that word given to us, you know, particularly in Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews begins by saying, in the former days, you know, God spoke to our fathers in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And so I, I do think that when it comes to the issue of prophecy, we need to be cautious, and, and all of those individuals that I listed before um, would agree that any type of conversation on prophecy is, is not going to include anything beyond the bounds of what God has given us um, in Scripture. So I'm going to leave it at that. Um, let me offer a word of prayer, because I think I'm going to get a lot of questions. Um, so let's pray. Father, we recognize um, this evening that there are aspects of your word that are 
uh, difficult. And we recognize that um, various followers of Jesus um, who are sincere about the truth of your word, that they study these things, and uh, at times they come to different positions on this. And so allow us, even in these times this evening, as we engage in this debate, to do so with a lot of grace and humility. And yet also help us to recognize that um, everything that we could possibly want has been given to us in your word. Help us to um, not place our faith on, on these gifts. Help us not to um, feel that these are the things that maybe define us as a Christian. Help us to recognize that Christ and following Jesus Christ and placing our faith in the promises of Christ, that that is what defines us. And that is what gives us hope and clarity. And so help us through all this um, to keep Jesus Christ central. In his name we pray.